All right, thank you guys for being seated. Let's open our Bibles this uh, morning to Romans chapter 3. We are proceeding uh, throughout our study of uh, the book of, of Romans. And as you're opening your Bibles there, let me say a word of welcome, as did uh, Josh. Those of you that are here may be guests in our worship experience, those that are joining us uh, online. And we are praying for you during the course of this week and during the course of this service. We pray that, uh, that through the acts of worship, the expressions of worship, through the proclamation of the word, that somehow God's Spirit will speak to you and challenge you. For some of you, it may mean becoming a follower of Christ. Maybe that's a decision that you have been contemplating for some time. Maybe you've been putting that off till another time, a better time, and there's no as good a time as this. This is the day of salvation. So I hope that you will take the time if God leads you and is prompting you uh, that you would just text FL Respond to that number that is provided, 833-571-3475, and we can follow up with you and have a very personal conversation with you about what it means to be a follower of Christ and uh, what it means to be a part of a, of a church family. And so we want to be a part of that faith journey with you. Uh, we as Americans, I think we would all agree that we don't do well in pausing and just slowing down. Uh, ours is a culture that very much likes uh, fast food. We like instant results to our medical exams. And uh, we want uninterrupted and undelayed travel. And if we don't get it, we will use the power of our social media platforms to let the world know about it, won't we? Well, nowhere is that more evident, our, our hesitancy to pause and our urgency in all things, than, than when it comes to eating. I uh, came across a little blurb some weeks ago that talked, uh, it was some group of nutritionists that uh, were tracking the, the, the rapid rate by which Americans ate their meals and meals that they say that they recommend should take 25 to 30 minutes to eat, we're doing in five to 10 minutes. And talking about how unhealthy that is for, for our digestive system, well, when I read that, my mind immediately went to Scripture, to the Bible, because uh, many times in uh, the Bible we find that, that the teachings of God's Word, uh, there's a metaphor, the metaphor of food is, is oftentimes used in talking about uh, spiritual nourishment in John 6, uh, talks about this is the bread which came down from heaven. Or in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew chapter 4 and verse 4, where Jesus made it clear that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so, as we think about food as spiritual nourishment, what I want us to do in light of having gone through Romans chapter 2 in its entirety, is I want us to pump the brakes a little bit. I want us to pause. I want us to take time to, to reflect. Uh, I don't want us to get up too quickly from that, that table uh, that Paul has said in, in, in Romans chapter 2, which really becomes foundational to everything that he will say in this section leading up to Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And it's almost like Paul himself is saying, let's pause right here. Because Paul has said some foundational things. He is establishing a premise in chapter 2 that is really earth-shattering to that Jewish audience, to, that, to the Jewish believers that were a part of, of, of the church in, in Rome. 
At this point, the church in Rome is primarily made up of of Gentile believers, but in its origin, it was for the most part made up of Jewish believers, Jews who had come to see that Christ is the Messiah. But after the the expulsion of of the Jews, I believe it was under the Emperor Claudius, and uh, the the Jews had to leave the city of Rome, but now they, they, they are back. But the Jewish believers are very much a minority group at this point, most likely in the church at Rome. And for these Jews, perhaps, and maybe even to the delight of some of the Gentile believers, they are shocked by what they have heard, what Paul has said in chapter 2. We went through all of chapter 2 in just just one sermon because Paul says a great deal that is redundant to say one thing, and that is that God is not partial. In fact, you see it in in chapter 2 in in verse 11 that, that God is impartial. That God shows no favorites. That the playing field is level when we think of the coming day of judgment, that that the playing field is is level. There is neither Jew nor Greek. And then from chapter 12 to the end of of chapter 2 to verse 29, Paul rattles their cages even more when, when he redefines what it means to be a Jew. That you have too long assumed that you have a privileged position because because you have the Mosaic law, because you have possession of of the law. You think you're in some advantageous position because you have circumcised your, your foreskin. But now he says there's a very real danger that that the circumcision can become uncircumcision. It's relevant for us because we are no different. We can assume that we are a privileged people as God's elect, as the family of faith, as a community of faith, because we have our Bible, because I study my Bible, because I go to church, because I've been baptized. That somehow we are exempt from, from the wrath of God and the coming judgment of God. But like the Jews, just as their circumcision can become uncircumcision, as they have no interest in the things of God, wrongly assuming that to be a Jew is some kind of birthright. We can assume that because we have been baptized, well, now we have, uh, because I have the mark of a Christian having been baptized, I, I can live as I want with no regard for the things of God, that I will be exempt from the wrath of God on the day of judgment. So, so Paul has set forth some things that, that really rattle the cages of, of his audience. He said there's some very real dangers of membership. There are some very real dangers of of being close to to the holy. And as we looked at those various dangers last week in chapter 2, it it, it raises some very real questions. And and one of the things that that we will notice in these questions that that unfold, this is not like the the diatribe methodology that Paul adopted back in in chapter 2 and verse 3. Remember that diatribe is a teaching methodology. It's an imaginary conversation between a teacher and a student to to address uh, differing opinions. But the questions that, that Paul is raising now that he will raise in chapter 2 are not, uh, it, it, these are not questions that emerge from a diatribe with some imaginary conversation, some imaginary dialogue partner trying to refute error. 
But the questions that Paul is raising are questions that arise out of logic. These are fair questions. These are sensible questions based upon everything that I've refuted, everything that I've said in chapter 2. Those things need, we need to pause over these. We need to explore these more fully. And Paul has a very unique technique in writing is that now having established some things, he's going to go and explain them further. And the things that, that we will address today in, in chapter 3, he's going to address again in chapter 6, chapter 9, chapter 11. To help refute this old way of thinking, these old digital files and tapes that, that the Jewish audience has running in their minds of what it means to be a Jew. Paul is going to continually revisit that through the book of Romans because he's redefining what it means to be a Jew. It's no longer about circumcision of the flesh, it's about circumcision of the, of the heart. It is a work of the Spirit. Well, let's begin by exploring these questions. Paul goes back and revisits the question of Jewish privilege. He says this in verse 1, then what advantage does, does the Jew have? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Now, we might here expect Paul to say, hey, in light of everything that he said in, in chapter 2 and redefining what it means to be Jew, when we hear this question being asked, and what advantage does the Jew have, or, or what is the benefit of circumcision, intuitively our response is probably going to be, well, none at all. And in other places in Paul's writing, he, he does seem to say that, but, but not here because he, it's part of his rhetorical flow in building an argument regarding the depravity of humanity that culminates in chapter 3 and verse 23 when he says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So we might assume that he's going to say, well, circumcision is, is of no advantage whatsoever to you. But that would mess up his argument. You see, for circumcision to me uh, to mean nothing, that would have to say that Scripture is wrong, that the Old Testament Scriptures were wrong. Uh, it, would, it would infer that, uh, that, 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 the, that the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis chapter, six, uh, chapter 17, uh, that, 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 is, that, that is, it, it, this is replacing what God said to Abraham. Not at all. But Paul says it's great in every respect. This fact that you have been chosen, this fact that you have been chosen from all the nations of, of the world in every respect. First, this, this is your first advantage. That they were entrusted with the actual words of God. They were entrusted. That's a significant word for them then, for us now. In fact, that word entrusted is a word that Paul will use often in, in describing the call of God upon his, his own life, that I've been entrusted with the gospel. Now, to be entrusted with something means that you have been given something to pass on to someone else. You ever had that experience? In your life, I know as a, as a pastor over the past 35 years, I can think of several occasions where, where someone dying and, and family members were distant would, would, would have said to me before, well, uh, pastor, will you, will you see that someone gets this? Will you see that, that my son, that my daughter gets this? 
And so this idea of being entrusted with something is that something is given to you so that you can give it to someone else. But the Jewish people did the worst thing they could possibly do, having been entrusted with the law, that they might be a light to the world. Isaiah 42, Isaiah 46, it's redundant in the Old Testament. This is nothing new. You've been entrusted with the oracles of God, the laws of Moses, that you might be a light to the world, that you might be a light in darkness, that that the world might be attracted and, and that all might know the salvation of God. The Jews did the worst thing they could possibly do. They kept the law to themselves. What they had received became for them an argument for exclusivism. And the same thing can easily happen to us as, as the church. We who are called to be, to be salt, who are called to be light, Oh, in our fear of the world, we cloister ourselves, we sequester ourselves, we have our own little Christian group, we, we have Christian everything so that, so that we, we cannot effectively be salt and light. You can't be salt sitting on the shelf of a pantry, you can't be light when you're constantly trying to find ways to put, to put your group under a bushel basket. And a gospel entrusted to us that was meant to be engaging, that was meant to be lived out in the presence of others as a distinctive kind of life. We have falsely understood what it is to be a privileged people. You see, this isn't anything new to the Jews. They've cherry-picked what they wanted the law to mean to them. Because you can even go back all the way to Deuteronomy in chapter 10 and verse 16, you know what Moses said to the people, how, monished, how, how Moses admonished the Jewish people? He challenged them to circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Moses understood what circumcision was, me, was, was meant to be. That circumcision is a privileged position when you take it and, and you live it out. Just like baptism, baptism is significant as long as we are living out what it is meant to signify and and to represent obedience. And so it's a fair and legit question because it brings to us an answer and a recognition and an understanding of being accountable for what's been given to us. There's a second question in light of everything that that Paul has said in chapter 2, there's, there's also questions of, of God's faithfulness. Now remember what, what Paul has already done. He has already redefined the value of circumcision. That, that, that now then it is, it is meaningless if, if it is not a circumcision of, of the heart. But now it raises the questions in light of this redefinition of, of circumcision and the value of circumcision, that raises a question of God's faithfulness. That is the question of God's faithfulness to the covenant that he made with Abraham back in Genesis 17. What then? Verse 3. What then? If, if some, and underscore that word some because that's a word of hope. It means there's a remnant. 
There's a remnant among the Jews that do believe. There are those there that do believe that Jesus is the Christ. There are those that do believe that Jesus is the Messiah who comes as, as a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. What then, if some did not believe, there, obviously there are those Jews that do not believe Jesus as the fulfillment of the covenant. If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Far from it, Paul says. Rather, God must prove to be true. Though every person be found a liar, as it is written, so that you are justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Quoting from, from Psalm 51. In other words, listen, God's, God's faithfulness, you may be a people who are unfaithful, but God is always faithful. The nature and the character of God cannot be questioned in this. What, in what you don't understand, it doesn't mean God is, is being less than faithful to his, to his promises to, to Abraham. And what Paul is saying here in verse 3, he's referring to the, Jewish, to the Jewish refusal to recognize that the promises of Abraham were now being fulfilled in Jesus as the Messiah. And Paul's going to come back and talk about that in chapter 10. Just to reiterate it, he's going to talk about it again when we get to chapter 10 in verses 14 through 21. And Paul's argument is, as we will see when we get to chapter 11 and verse 23, his argument is, is that the failure to, of the Jews to believe in Christ And that is the covenant violated. You see, God's faithfulness is not, is, is not un, on trial here. It is the faithfulness of those that are supposed to be the people of God. And the fact that you refuse to see in Christ that he is the Messiah, that he is the fulfillment of the covenant made to Abraham, that is the equivalent, equivalent to unfaithfulness to the covenant. Now, here's the tension point for his audience. When they receive this letter and they hear this letter being read, here is the tension point when they, when they come to everything he has said in chapter 2 and that he's addressing here now. Paul's gospel and his message that the covenant with Abraham is fulfilled fully. In the coming of the Messiah, the person of, of Jesus Christ, the implication of that is that it offers salvation to uncircumcised Gentiles who believe. While, while, while circumcised Jews who are seeking to faithfully live the law but don't believe in Christ, that they will be condemned. Now, if you have a proper understanding of the Old Testament, as Paul's audience did, especially his, his, his Jewish believing audience, the revelation of God has always been a work in progress. The covenant of God has always unfolded in, in ways that they never imagined. That was true in the Old Testament as well. And what they have failed to understand in the fashioning of their own kind of gospel, in, the, in their fashioning of their own th uh, salvation theology, what they have, have failed to understand is that this covenant of God, it's not just about promises. It's also 
based upon the premises of which it was established. That when God enters into a covenant relationship and these covenants that God establishes with his people, it is always the greater lowering himself to the lesser. And so it's always the proaction of, of God of engaging sinful hum, humanity. And what we fail to understand that is that in these covenant relationships with God, it's not just about a promise, it's a premise upon which they're, they're, they're based. It's not just blessings, it's also judgment. And remember, he is constantly moving towards this Romans 3.23 that will culminate, culminate this section for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In my desire of what the covenant would establish in the hearts of my people, it has failed. And God has to find one true Israelite, Christ. For everything to be established through Christ Jesus, he had to be the full representation of Israel. I need one Israelite to be obedient to the law because the Jewish people have failed. God's faithfulness is not on trial. It's the people of God, of what we are called to be and what we are called to represent. Now, it raises another question, though, and that's the question of God's righteousness. He says in verse 5, but, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is, is not unrighteous, is he? I, I'm speaking from a human viewpoint. Paul, Paul's just writing this from, from what appears to be the human perspective. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is, is not unrighteous, is he? Far from it, Paul says in verse 6. For otherwise, how will God judge the world. Now, I've asked you before, whenever we see this word righteousness, and it's a word we're going to see a great deal in our study of the book of Romans, that, that you really need to associate this with justice. Whenever you see, Paul will vacillate between talking about God's justice and God's righteousness. These, these are really synonymous in, in the theology of, of Paul. And remember a few weeks, I gave you this very simplistic definition of righteousness when we talk about the righteousness of God. It is the work of God in, in making things right. What sin has broken, what, God, what, what sin has corrupted, God in his salvific purposes and in, in his redemptive purposes is working to make things right. And his argument is, and what he's trying to explain to those, to, to a Jewish audience, to those that might hear, uh, whether Jewish believers or Jewish unbelievers in Christ. He's saying, if, if, if we're going to talk about the righteousness of God, if God is truly going to be right, if God is truly going to make things right, if he's going to right the ships, so to speak, then the playing field has to be level. What, what would possibly make you think that a, that a circumcised Jew, circumcised ceremonial, ceremonially on, on the eighth day of his, of his life, uh, but has no regard for the things of God, what, what makes you think that that person is going to be in a, in, a, in a more advantageous place than an uncircumcised Gentile that is seeking to, to live for the things of God? Now, see, if God is truly going to right the ship, 
so to speak. If God is truly going to be righteous, then the playing field has to be level. Having possession of the law, being circumcised, and, but if you're, if you're disobedient, that's not going to excuse you or, or exempt you from the wrath of God that is going to be poured out. And perhaps the world to whom Paul wrote really wasn't that different from our world. Because see, when, when we think about partiality, we can kind of celebrate, can't we, when we hear that, that God is impartial? But the truth of the matter is we really don't mind God being partial as long as he's partial to me. <laughs> I really don't mind him being impartial to others. But man, if God's going to be partial, I, I don't mind him being partial to me. And he's trying to write a world that, 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 that tends to define righteousness by what you have. The, uh, the, wealth, the wealthy are privileged. Those born of a certain tribe, a certain color, ethnicity, they, they have advantages, they have privileges. Those who have the right connections, they are in a position of advantage, they, they are privileged. But what God is doing in his righteousness, in his turning the world upside down, is to make all of these things right. Otherwise, God is unfair. If he judges the Jew differently from the Gentile, God is unfair. He is inconsistent. He is, in fact, unrighteous. But what about a final question that, that is raised? These are questions of bitter absurdity. The, the whole argument, this rhetorical flow is, is kind of, have come to this place of, of absurd questions being asked. Notice in verse seven, but if through my lie, but if through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also being judged as a sinner? In other words, what, what, Paul, the argument Paul is fashioning in, in his mind. And, and, uh, but if, if through my lie, and notice Paul is including himself among sinners. Don't ever think that, that Paul is, is anti-Jewish. Paul, Paul has an affinity for the Jewish people, though he is a, an apostle to the Gentiles. Paul has, Paul has a heartbeat for his, for his people. These are a people with whom he identifies closely. You go to, you go to Philippians chapter 4, uh, or, or Philippians chapter 3, I think it is, verses 4 through 6. Paul, Paul considers himself a Hebrew among Hebrews. In fact, Paul has such a love for the Jewish people that in his desire to see them come to faith, by the time we get to chapter 9, you know what Paul says? Paul says, I would wish myself accursed for the sake of my Jewish brethren. In other words, Paul is saying, I have such a love for my people and, the, and a desire to see them come to a faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of this Abrahamic covenant. I would just as soon go to hell myself, be accursed, and see my brethren come to a faith and working knowledge of Jesus Christ. But here's, here's the argument. If through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? 
In other words, if, if God's mercies and, and God's forgiveness is glorified uh, because of my sin, then why, why am I being punished? If, if God is made to look good because of my rebellion and disobedience, is gra- if, grace, if the grace of God is allowed to shine all the more because of my shortcomings, then why am I, why am I being judged? Why is it being held against me? And he's going to deal with this again in chapter 6 and in chapter 9 as well. And why not say, verse 8, and here's a little bit of Paul's bitterness and anger. And why not say, just as we are slanderously reported and it's some claim that, that we say, and why not say, let's do evil that good may come of it. Paul says, those that misconstrue my gospel, those who try to say, well, Paul, your, your gospel is very dangerous because your gospel of grace and, and faith and salvation that is by faith and not by the works of the law, uh, Paul, that's a very dangerous kind of gospel. What you're doing is giving people a license to sin, to be disobedient. So if grace can abound all the more, let's sin all the more. And there are some people that are saying that about Paul, that are undermining Paul's message and and his ministry. And you can tell that, that it aggravates Paul because this is the pure, unadulterated gospel, a gospel built upon faith alone and not the works of the law. But there's always those that want to keep attaching the law to this in some form or some fashion. You see what Paul said in regard to that? Their condemnation is deserved. Their condemnation is deserved. You see, we, we keep, we work, we labor to hold forth this pure gospel of God that invites people to come to to the mercies of God and to know the mercies of God by faith in Christ Jesus. And those who would seek to distort the gospel. And there are other gospels that are floating around today that, that are no less exclusive than the message of the Judaizers, those that continue, that it's no different than the Jews that, that want to cling to the old rituals, the old ways as being symbols of, of our faith. And there are gospels floating around today in our, in our day and time that are distortions, of the, that, that are no less exclusive, that are for us, but not others. And when you start getting into the business of distorting the gospel, it leads to condemnation. And it's something, it's a trap that we we can all fall into where we start, we have this knowledge of the gospel, this familiarity with the gospel, and and we're so familiar with it, we start rewriting it. Oh, we grab hold of faith and grace, but then we, we rewrite, we disregard everything else, and, and we rewrite it in accordance with the life we want to live. The lifestyles that we can cling to, and hold to, but, but we still play the grace card. 
Paul is saying to them and to us, you do not get to rewrite the gospel. It leads only to condemnation. And so Paul suggests, as, as I would to us, that Paul's suggestion is, is that we just pause for a moment. Pondering his words, reflect, reflecting upon his words. Before we get up and rush out to the table, let's sit at this table. And let's reflect and perhaps come to the realization that like everyone else, we are just sinners. Acknowledging that we are but sinners and leave here as such. Sinners saved by grace that the world might see us as a gracious people. Father, we can make no unique claims for ourselves. Not because we have been baptized, not because we have joined the church, not because we toted our Bible to the sanctuary this morning. That there is no righteousness that we can claim for ourselves. That there is no righteousness to be accomplished. There is no righteousness to be, to be realized apart from Christ Jesus. The one who came not to abolish the law, but, but to fulfill it. Enabling us to have the power to live the life that you have called us to live. That, Father, we might leave this place as a gracious people to truly be a light that others would be drawn to you in the life of faith. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.